Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the water continues to get deeper and deeper. We're talking about to each his own, and this is part five. I've already determined this is going to be a long series, to each his own. Part five. We're in verse 10, and today we're going to approach the subject of the gift of prophecy. Now, let me back up and get a running start. And I want you to pray for me as I go through this today, because I want you to know I've never been as challenged as I have been recently in these verses. The focus of the believer is always to be the giver and never the gift. And the attitude of the believer is always, always to be surrender to him, getting up under him, attaching yourself to him and surrendering to him. When it is, then whatever God does, either to us or through us, is okay. Because God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. We receive His purposes. We allow Him to do what He wants to do. If one's focus ever becomes the gift, as it has in Corinth, or the manifestations, and what happens is, this becomes the root of all error, confusion, and division within God's church. Now that's what's going on in Corinth that we're dealing with. Paul is addressing this kind of division and confusion when it comes to spiritual gifts in chapter 12. We've been looking at the extraordinary gifts of verses 9 and 10. Now back in verse 8 we saw the equipping gifts, but that's another, we've already preached that, we've gone beyond that. We're in the extraordinary gifts. Now they're found, as I said, in verses 9 and 10, and they're linked together by the little word, another. Now you know there's two words for another that we're tracking down through here. There is the word for another, alas, that means to another of the very same kind. That's first found in verse 8. But then in beginning in verse 9, he says, and to another, heteros, to another of a totally different kind. And then he links six gifts together by going back to that other word for another, which means of the same kind. He starts with faith. Gifts of healings, effecting of miracles, prophecy, and so on. And these are linked together, put into a category all by themselves. Now, in verse 9, so far in 10, we've looked at the gift of faith. That starts it. Anytime Paul makes a list, Peter makes a list, the first thing they say normally is the well out of which everything else flows. And so the gift of faith sets the pace here. It, it begins to, to set the picture of what's coming, the gift of faith. There's no definite article, which means it's not the faith that all of us have, but it's an extraordinary ability that God gives 
to those he chooses to put on the firing line of life, when they come to those challenging moments in life, that they're able to believe God when perhaps ordinarily they would have struggled. God just infuses this belief. Now we see this gift of faith particularly in the appointed men that Jesus appointed in the New Testament, the apostles, the prophets, others. We see them in situations to where they were given extraordinary faith to trust and believe God in the midst of very overwhelming circumstances. Now, hinging on the gift of faith, very naturally comes the gifts of healings. As we've said, every time we've approached this, there's absolutely nothing more overwhelming in life than to have to deal with physical illness or sickness, and particularly life-threatening things. And here, the gift of faith, again, would be needed even in that, the gifts of healing. There is no gift of healing, for it's in the plural, not in the singular. And what God does here in, in, is, is He inspires the Apostle Paul to write this. He includes in, in this not only the miraculous ordinary, but the extraordinary. There are extraordinary healings. As a matter of fact, in our lives, we may never see more than one or two or three extraordinary healings. But in our normal everyday life, it's still a miracle because God is still doing the healing. Whether a person takes an aspirin and gets healed or whether a person does not take any medicine and is extraordinarily healed, God is still the healer. So the gifts of healing has to be incorporated into that, the miraculous ordinary, because it is a miracle of healing that God continues to do that in our life. Then we move from the gifts of healing to the effecting of miracles, which again is in the plural, not in the singular. You don't hang a shingle on your door and say, this is my gift. These are the gifts in this particular category that God gives when He chooses and if He chooses and for how long He chooses. This is not something you're spiritually born again with as we have other gifts that fit that category. Not these. These are the extraordinary gifts. They're in a class all by themselves. And the effecting of miracles has within it the implicit miracles of every day that we live in, but also the extraordinary miracles that we see in Scripture. We looked at the miraculous ordinary the first day. Then last week we looked at the extraordinary things that God has chosen to do throughout history, uh, the history of the church, to give us an understanding of what these miracles could possibly entail. Now remember that when God gives, the, gives this gift, it's not the power to do the miracles. God's always the one who does them. But it's the, the witness of these miracles. In other words, it, the affecting doesn't mean the ability to, it means the effect of. And it's, it's translated in such a way, it, means, it, it looks like it means God gives the power to do these miracles. Well, in a sense that's right, but it's Him, He's the power. That's the key. He's the one who does the miracles. And there are many, many things that God, God chooses to do. When He steps across the laws that He Himself has miraculously ordained and chooses to do the extra ordinary and he's done that and the pattern that we see in scripture the consistency of it is only found with the appointed men that Jesus himself appointed the apostles the evangelists the prophets these were the key people that God himself appointed we do not see a consistency or a pattern in these gifts from that point on can God still do it absolutely but there's no pattern for someone today to say that he has the gift of healing and can call that down at any moment is to completely misunderstand the consistency and the pattern that you find in God's Word. God still healed, don't get me wrong. That's, that's the miraculous ordinary. But the extraordinary things in which he does and the miracles that we talked about the last week, he, he did as a pattern only with those appointed men that God had in the early part of the church. 
Now as we deal with this, we're going to move in today to the gift of prophecy. And it's not an easy thing. And as we deal with it, remember, don't jump ahead of me. There are a lot of other things we're going to say about it. Today just enters into the subject. When you walk out of here, let that be a piece of the puzzle. We'll see the whole puzzle, hopefully, before it's over with. We're dealing with an immature, ignorant church. Don't ever forget that. And in their immaturity, in their ignorance, it wasn't because of what they had not been taught. It was because they were unwilling to surrender to what they had been taught. And this is what's created the whole problem in the church of Corinth. And so what Paul is dealing with is trying to unravel the distortion that has come about in the believers in that day. Well, the first thing we're going to do, and the only thing we're going to do today, it's going to take the rest of the message, is to make a connection between the gift of prophecy found in verse 10 and the office of the prophet, which is also found in Scripture, and we're going to put the two together. The office of the prophet is first mentioned in Corinthians in verse 28 of chapter 12. But we're going to make a connection between the gift of prophecy found in this unique group of gifts in verse 10 and the office of prophet of that day in the early church. Now, the word prophecy is the word prophetess. It says in verse 10, and to another prophecy. The word prophetess, it comes from two words, pro, which means toward or forth, and the word phimi, which means to tell. It can mean one of three things, and this is where the confusion is going to set in. It can mean one of three things. And what we have to determine is in this list, what is it referring to? Because in other lists, it does not refer to this, and I'll show you that before the message is over. First of all, it can mean to tell forth the truth. Someone who stands in front of others and declares the truth of God's Word as he takes the Scriptures and proclaims God's Word. That's the first thing it can mean. Second thing it can mean is for a person to have an instantaneous revelation of God, all, always consistent with the truth, and he would speak it to people in, in some, some way to edify and to give instruction to God's people. That happened in Scripture, we'll show you. Thirdly, it also can mean to foretell the future. Now those are three things that the word prophetess can mean. It can mean, again, that a person has the gift of foretelling or telling forth the truth of God. It can mean to have an instantaneous revelation from God and to then give that to the people that are around, to edify and to instruct. And then thirdly, is to be to foretell the future. Obviously, there are two in that list that would perhaps enter into the, the area of being in the extraordinary. And that is to have an instantaneous revelation and then secondly, to foretell the future. Now these would be the two extraordinary things that would fit under the definition of what the word prophetess can mean. And remember, in verse 9 and 10, we're in the extraordinary gifts, class all by themselves. Now, we must be careful in how we handle this gift of prophecy in verse 10. It will be different than in other places when it's handled in Scripture. So we must be very careful to remember the category in which it's found. Well, to do our homework, we've got to make the connection with the gift of prophecy, which I believe to be extraordinary in this list, with also the extraordinary office of the prophet in the New Testament. Two things that had to fit together. Now, the offices of the newly established church, the Christian church, that as it came on the scene, are very different than what they are today. There were certain extraordinary offices that they had then that we do not have today. 
And there are three of them basically. Now there are two lists that give the offices of the church. In Ephesians chapter four and verse 11 that they had then. Ephesians four and verse 11 and 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 28. Let's go over to Ephesians first since we're coming back to 1 Corinthians. Ephesians chapter four and verse 11. These were what were seen in that day. As a matter of fact, uh, there was one of them that continues on, but the rest of them do not. Ephesians chapter four and verse 11. It says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists. And then he says, and some as pastor teachers or some people say pastors and teachers. Either way you want to translate that. <clears throat> Obviously we know we have pastors and teachers today, but <clears throat> back then, wow, <clears throat> excuse me, something just got hung in my throat. <clears throat> Maybe it was that 12 piece of bacon I ate this morning, I don't know. <clears throat> Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers or pastors and teachers, however you want to make that list. And then in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 28, we find another list of the offices of the early church. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 28. And these are important to understand. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and then third teachers. Now God, Paul always, and even in his list as he goes through 1 Corinthians 12, includes the ordinary with the extraordinary. These officers in the early church did the ordinary as well as the extraordinary, but there were also some offices that were simply the ordinary. There were three, however, in both those lists, you put them together, there were three offices that were extraordinary offices in the early church that we do not have today. They would be, number one, the office of the apostle, number two, the office of the evangelist, and number three, the office of the prophet. Now these could be easily argued to classify into the extraordinary offices of the church of that day. Now I want to walk through all three of them and show you why I make those statements. Each of these three offices required four things that none of the other ordinary offices required. First of all, it required an extraordinary call. Now I believe in a call, not a, but an ordinary call. I'm talking about an extraordinary call. That's the first thing. Secondly, they required an extraordinary power that enabled them to act in the offices they were called to. Thirdly, an extraordinary gift or gifts for the exercise of this power. And then fourthly, an extraordinary work in the effect that it had upon those that, to which they were ministering. All of these offices were given for instruction and for the fashioning of the early church. And we still have offices today, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Three of these are extraordinary offices and were directly needed as the church was birthed there in the book of Acts. Three of them. First of all, let's look at the gift or the, the office of the apostle. The office of the apostle. The apostles were those who extended the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only while he was on the earth, but after he died and resurrected and ascended, after he had gone back to heaven, they continued to extend the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the Lord's work? Look over in first, uh, Romans rather, 15 verse 8. Romans 15 and verse 8. What was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? What was, his, what was his purpose of being here on the earth other than going to the cross, obviously, and dying for our sin? But what was the focus of his ministry when he was here on this earth? Romans 15 and verse 8. The Apostle Paul talks about the ministry focus of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he says in verse 8 of Romans 15, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Now notice here, he speaks of the Jews. Not the Gentile, but the circumcision. That's always a reference to the Israel. On behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now we must understand, Christ's main work when he was here on this earth was to get the gospel to the Israelites, to the, to the Jews. Obviously, when he died, the covenant was going to be for the Gentiles and the Jews, but he came for the sake of Israel. In the discharge of the ministry that the Father had assigned to him, he assigned 12 men called apostles. These 12 men were to extend the work while he was here on earth and after he had left this earth to go back to be with the Father. Look in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. Since they were delegated by the Lord Jesus Christ, they had the same focus that he had. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5 and 6. When he speaks to his disciples, he clearly identifies where they're to put their emphasis. Matthew 10 and verse 5 and 6. It says in verse 5 of Matthew 10, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them saying, now listen to what he told them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that little word rather, when he says, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, mark the single purpose for which Christ came and the single purpose that he first identified with the 12 men he appointed to serve him and to extend his work. There's no, uh, this was so ingrained into the apostles. I mean, this was something they heard from the very beginning. It's to Israel, to Israel, to Israel, to Israel, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Brother Nick, thank you, sir. Bless you. <laughs> you wished you had some of this. Ah, whoo, what's in that glass? No, <laughs> leave that alone. <laughs> I won't touch that. <laughs> this was so ingrained in the apostles that the apostle Paul speaking to a group of Jews in a, in a synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, the Jews, first. Now, they understood this. They understood that Jesus' focus was the Jews. They understood he now assigned them with the same focus. During the time of Christ. On this earth, he gave these apostles extraordinary power to do extraordinary things. And he gave them the right to use it. Look in Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. He again is speaking to the 12. And he want, we want to make sure that we realize they had attached to them the extraordinary uses of the powers that God alone could do through them. Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. He's again talking to the 12. And it says in verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now the word authority there is the word exousia and it's translated very well. It means the right and the might. Not only did he give them responsibility, he gave them the power in which to do it. And so he gave them the right to use that power. These are specific set apart men. And Jesus had those men appointed to extend the ministry that he first came for, which was to reach the nation of Israel. But in the giving of this extraordinary power while he was still on this earth, he also limited them to the use of this power only with, again, the Israelites. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, he says to them, knowing now for the power that he had given to them, he says, and gathering them together, he commanded them to, to not leave Jerusalem. You stay in Jerusalem. 
Even after he had ascended and right before Pentecost came, he said, you stay in Jerusalem. But he was about to extend their ministry to the other most parts of the world. You see, until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, then the focus was no longer just Israel, the focus still Israel, but also the Gentile nations of the world. He says in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, right before he left, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's speaking to his disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now these extraordinary gifts accompanied the disciples and the apostles when Jesus was on this earth, but they also accompanied them after he had left this earth. He continued to give them the extraordinary abilities to do the things that, that they could not do apart from his power. When their commission was extended to the uttermost parts of the world, this immediately took some adjustment on their part. You've got to understand the mindset. All they had known was Israel, 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 the Jew, the Jew, the Jew. And then all of a sudden, the world has been opened up to them. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 11, there was an argument that arose amongst the apostles as to which was first, the Jew or the Gentile. Which ones were they supposed to go to first? They, there was some confusion that set into this thing. In Ephesians 3, the apostle Paul himself in prison is still overwhelmed at how the Gentile, the dogs that were called in the, in the Gospels, could ever be a part of the new covenant that God had given. But now this door had been opened to the apostles. But the accompanying extraordinary gifts continued to remain with the apostles. Now we looked at that in detail the last time that we were together. They, they continued to accompany them. Now there's no apostolic succession to these men, contrary to public thinking. There is no apostolic succession. They were unique for a time and they exist no more. Paul said in Galatians 1.1, Paul an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Man in no way has any part of this. God in history stepped in and said, I need 12 men and these 12 men are gonna be extraordinary men and they're gonna hold an extraordinary office and they're gonna do extraordinary things until I'm finished with them and that's it. I'm not gonna have any more. Now he stopped it right there. These apostles were men that God chose and that God sent. Used to do the extraordinary. You have to connect the extraordinary with also the office that was extraordinary that God had given to them. It was a temporary office. Even though there were others who were called apostles and that word continues to filter through the church, in no way are they in the apostle in the sense that these 12 were apostles. There are no more apostles like those 12 apostles. And the extraordinary things had its pattern only with these men. Did God do extraordinary things down through church history? Absolutely, but not as a pattern. You saw the pattern in the men that he had chosen. But the second group that Christ chose, he chose the 12, the apostles, were the evangelists. Remember the 70 that he sent out? Look over in Luke chapter 10 and verse one. When he sent out the 70, there's no other way to qualify them except as the evangelist to go out and prepare the way to the places to where Christ was coming. In Luke chapter 10 and verse one. Luke 10, verse one, says in verse one, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two 
ahead of him to every city and every place where he himself was going to come. Now these evangelists were subordinate to the apostles. No doubt they answered to the apostles. But they were given the temporary extraordinary power to pave the way for him to come. Now let me show you the extraordinary things he attached to them. They had the power to heal in verse 9 of that same chapter. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them the kingdom of God has come near to you. The power to cast out demons in verse 17. And the 70 returned with joy saying Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then in verse 19, the power to tread over serpents and, serpents and scorpions. Behold, he says, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall injure you. But just as the Lord had sent out these early evangelists during the day that he was living on this earth, paving the way into the cities that he was about to go and minister, to do the extraordinary, to point to the fact that there was someone divine on, its, on his way, after he had died, resurrected, and ascended, he still had the evangelist in the New Testament in the early church. These evangelists that came later on are only mentioned one place, and that's, that's Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 as a group. Philip is called an evangelist. Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist, but that's about all we know about the evangelists that were assigned to the early church as an office in that church. We don't know their number. We don't know what qualifications they had because there are none given in scripture, but it's apparent that their call was extraordinary. Whether an apostle or whether an evangelist, all of these were heralding the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles to the Jew first and then to the nations of the world. The evangelist in every place and every people and every tribe and every nation to get out the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. The evangelists were not the same on the plane of authority as the apostle. They were accountable to the apostles. We know that, for instance, Paul determined for how long and for what Titus would do on the island of Crete. He wrote and instructed him. Paul the apostle speaking to Timothy the evangelist. The work of these extraordinary evangelists of the New Testament was to preach the gospel in all places at all times. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ. In 2 Timothy, Paul charged Timothy to do the work of an evangelist and in the same breath said, be instant in season and out of season to preach the word of God. These were those who went out heralding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what made them stand out from others that preached Christ? You have to attach the extraordinary things that happened alongside them. This is what made them extraordinary in the early church. Just as the apostles had attached to them the extraordinary gifts to do the things that ordinarily they could not do, just the same way the evangelists were also gifted as we saw in Luke and, and certainly tracking it through the New Testament. They had the, the abilities that God gave them to do the extraordinary. Are there still evangelists in the church? Absolutely, but not the office of evangelists. This office was for a specific time. It was for a specific purpose. And it was accompanied by extraordinary gifts to do those things. And those gifts were obviously, as they are in all three of these offices, to show the authenticity of, the, of who they were and to show that they'd been commissioned by God himself. Well, the next group that we come to were the, were the ones that he appointed and they were the prophets. Now, not of the Old Testament, certainly they were appointed of God, but the prophets of the New Testament. A lot of people don't understand that they were prophets in the New Testament. Now, they worked in extraordinary ways and these extraordinary gifts just seemed to be consistent in their lives. First, they received extraordinary revelations from God, 
which were immediate. In other words, they didn't go off and, and uh, spend eight days doing something, but they, as they were praying and as they were fasting, God would speak to them things and they would then again reveal it to the church. These revelations dealt with all kinds of things and particularly responsibilities within the church, wisdom that God had given them. For instance, turn over to Acts chapter 13 and verse one. We find a group of these people that the Holy Spirit of God just moved upon and gave insight in an instant revelation to show them what to do with Paul and Barnabas. Acts 13 and verse one. It says in verse one of Acts 13, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Mananin, who, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It was a group of these prophets that were meeting together fasting and praying that the Holy Spirit revealed his will for Paul and Barnabas. But not only did they have instantaneous revelations from God, that they would speak to the church for their edification or for their understanding, but also these men could foretell the future. This was an extraordinary gift to foretell what was about to happen. For instance, Agabus was the one who foretold the famine that was going to take place in Jerusalem, which led them to take up an offering for those people. Look in Acts. Well, I didn't write the chapter down. Let me just read it to you. <laughs> oh, the mind is a beautiful thing. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. One of the things about being a prophet in that day and also in the Old Testament was they were never wrong. If they were ever wrong, they were proven to be a false prophet. In the Old Testament, they were stoned to death. Isn't it interesting the resurgence of this extraordinary gift, people say, in, in our day and time? And you don't have to be right all the time. You have to learn how to do it. That doesn't measure with scripture whatsoever. He prophesied it and it says, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. What he said came from God and it took place. It was Agabus that prophesied that Paul would be put in bonds in Jerusalem. I did write the chapter down on this one. Acts 21 and verse 10. Acts chapter 21 and verse 10. This is Agabus the prophet. What I'm trying to show you is that in the apostles and the evangelists and in the prophets, they had these extraordinary gifts that, that connected to the extraordinary offices that God had put them into. Acts 21 in verse 10. It says in verse 10, and as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, did he go to Jerusalem? Yes. Did he go because the people wanted him to go? No. But when he got there, was Agabus right? He was exactly right. That's when the false accusation came up against him. He spent the next five years in prison. Exactly what Agabus prophesied in that day. Their work was extraordinary. Remember, when you studied the New Testament in the early church, they didn't even have the whole word of God. They had the gospels and a few epistles and that's all they had. They didn't have anything but the Old Testament and mainly the gospel. And so therefore, these men were given to keep them on track and to make sure that they were hearing from God. But it was an extraordinary office. They carried with it extraordinary gifts. There's no mention of their ordination. 
There's no mention of their qualifications. There's no mention of anything like that as there is none with the evangelists or with the apostles. It was just simply that God appointed the apostles, God appointed the evangelists, and God appointed the prophets. We, if it were to be in the church today, we would have some kind of guideline as to what the character of these men must be, as to what the, the direction of these men must be. Apostles and prophets of the three that I mentioned were the two prominent ones. And the evangelists were, like I said, subordinate to them. And that's the exact order of Ephesians 4.11. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Who are the apostles and prophets? Ephesians chapter 4 that mentions them also defines them in chapter 2 and verse 20 of Ephesians. It says, our faith is built upon the foundation of the apostles. Now why does he put, not put the prophets first? Because he's dealing with the New Testament. The apostles and the prophets. And it puts them right into the category of where they belong. They belong in the foundational period of the birthing of the church of Jesus Christ on this earth. For these to exist today, some people say, Brother Wayne, you're going too far. They're prophets just like there were prophets back then. They're apostles just like they were back then. All right, let me tell you something. The scary part of what you're saying, the scary part is if they're still apostles like they were then, and they're still prophets like they were then, then they have the right to add to Scripture and to take away from Scripture because this was something God assigned to them that he assigned to no other man. And if I read Revelation correctly, if any man adds to or takes away from this book, then the consequences of judgment will be upon him. There's nobody today that can do that. However, there are people doing that. There's a group of men in Dallas, Texas that have appointed themselves in a meeting, in a hotel room, that they are now anointed New Testament, New Century or whatever you want to call it, apostles. And now they have authority that when they speak, it's as if God has spoken. Friend, I want to tell you something. If I ever step up here and call myself either of the two, either shoot me or do something because I have just lost my mind. Next thing I'm going to tell you is to drink the purple Kool-Aid or that there's a spaceship out in heaven that's waiting on us to kill ourselves so we can join up with it. And who knows what's happened to these 50 that's disappeared. They can't even find them right now. They think another travesty has happened exactly the same way. That's the kind of thing you get into when you think that those people are still alive today, prophets and apostles or evangelists, as in the sense of the extraordinary, accompanied with the extraordinary gifts that we see in Scripture. There's no possible way in my understanding of Scripture that they can be today. They were for the early foundational part of the church. And the prophet that we got off into and mentioned all three of them, the prophet was clearly one of these extraordinary offices in the early church. Now somebody's got to be asking, well, Wayne, hold it. You just told me that these three offices were not in the church today. Then what offices are in the church today? <laughs> That's a, I'm glad you asked. I didn't ask anything. That's the easiest question of all. You know what they are? And the qualifications are clear. They are the elders and they are the deacons in the New Testament church. Do you realize that the only two offices that God gives the qualifications for what they ought to be in the New Testament church? And do you realize the word teacher is the responsibility of these elders because the, one of the first ones he says is they have to be apt to teach and the word pastor, poimen. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me show you something. Peter just nails all, th all three of the, of the words associated with elder. You got the word elder, you got the word overseer, and you got the word bishop. Now what do they all mean? Actually, the word overseer is translated bishop and many, many things. You got the word shepherd. It's those three words. The elder, the shepherd, 
and the bishop or the overseer. Look at this in 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. I think it's so interesting how he ties them all together and shows you these are the same people. Just different things are being, being said about them. Therefore I exhort the elders among you. The word elders is presbyteros. I remember back when we were moving toward the elder system, many of our people said, Wayne, that's Presbyterian. <laughs> no, Presbyterian just borrowed their name from a Greek word. That doesn't change what Scripture says. There were elders in Scripture, presbyteros. That's the office. Now look, he says, and, and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock. The word shepherd, poimen. It's the exact word we get the word pastor from in Scripture. And then he says, among you, exercising oversight. Episcopos is what the word bishop comes from. All three are the same people. Isn't it interesting how some denominations make the elders these people and the bishops these people, and the pastors over here. But they're all the same. And it's always in the plural except when John calls himself an elder or Peter calls himself an elder or when it says, don't receive an accusation against an elder unless there be two or three witnesses. So every time it's found as a, it's a group of men, it's not one man. We've gotten so mixed up today. There's still offices in the church. And God does the miraculous ordinary through these offices. But the extraordinary offices of the apostle and the evangelist and the prophet are no longer in the church. We have the complete word of God and we have elders, but also we have deacons. The word deacon, diakonos, is a word that was never translated. It was transliterated. You know what that means? It means we're all confused as to what it means. That's what it means. The word deacon means, or diakonos, meant a servant. Here, can you like to have another glass of tea? Oh, can I help you? Did you spill it? Let me, let me help you. That's, that's what it means, just a menial servant. A deacon has never been, will never be a place of honor. It's a place of service. But you know why it wasn't translated? Because in the church that translated the, the Bible into the King James English was a church that used the deacons as a high office of power. And the translators got together and said, whoa, if we translate this word, we're in deep trouble. We better transliterate the word. So they just made a word out of a word and everybody's been confused ever since. You've got churches right to this day in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that that church will never move because they got a deacon power lock on it. Because these men think of themselves as controllers and not servants and that's the whole problem with the system. But if you look in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus, it gives the beautiful rules of what a deacon ought to be and what an elder ought to be. I remember back when we first studied this years ago, we had 15 deacons here at Woodland Park. And I'll tell you what, what I've respected them beyond any deacon I've ever known in my life because those 15, after studying it through scripture, came in a meeting and said, listen, we have decided to all resign and we don't ever want to be asked to be a deacon again until you see that consistently evidenced in our life along with the character that God says must be our character if we're to be a deacon. And that told me right then, God's up to something at Woodland Park Baptist Church. There are two offices, two. There's the elders and there's the office of deacon. You don't find the office of prophet. You don't find the office of evangelist, although there are evangelists, it's not an office. And also the office of prophet. Because if you take those first three, those three that I've talked about, each one of these are extraordinary offices. They were in the early fashioning of the church and they were connected with extraordinary gifts. They say, in a way, we spent a lot of time, we've learned a lot about the offices of the church. What's that got to do with the office of prophecy? Well, I've been trying to show you that the prophet of the, of the New Testament was an extraordinary office. What is the gift that's found in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 10? 
in the, gift, the list of extraordinary gifts. Of the three definitions that you know that a prophecy can be. One, to instantaneously hear from God and then to speak in an extraordinary way. Two, is to foretell the future. And then three, the ordinary, just teaching the word of God, which to me still is miraculous. Which of those are the extraordinary? The first two. So which does the gift of prophecy almost have to be in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 12? When you look at faith, gifts of healings, effecting of miracles, then the prophecy he speaks of there has got to be that extraordinary gift of prophecy. Certainly the prophets taught in the ordinary sense. They did the ordinary, but they also did the extraordinary. And to me, you've got to connect verse 10 prophecy with verse 28, the prophet of 1 Corinthians 12. The extraordinary office and the extraordinary gifts. Extraordinary gifts were given for extraordinary offices. They had to connect together. You say, well, Wayne, I'm still confused. Look in Romans chapter 12 and verse six. I wanna show you the other side of that. There's another sense in which prophecy is given to the body of Christ. And it's a different sense than what we see in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You've got these extraordinary offices and you've got these extraordinary gifts, but then you also see prophecy mentioned even in 1 Corinthians, you're gonna see it again. And he says to, to desire that, that particular gift. Romans 12 and verse six. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. Look here. If prophecy, first one he mentions. Now if he dropped it right there, we still got a dilemma, but he didn't drop it. According to the proportion of what? Now you tell me what your translation says. Your translation says what? His faith. Would you throw a little circle around the word his and a little arrow up and say, oops. There is no word his there. It's a definite article. It's not his faith, it's the faith. And what's that telling you about that gift of prophecy? You think that's some kind of, of guy that stands up in front of a group and says, oh God, this spoke to me and I have a revelation for you. You think that's what he's saying? Do you think that's somebody foretelling the future? No, sir. He said this particular gift mentioned in Romans chapter 12 is the gift of telling forth the word of God and it must exactly marry to what the word of God has to say. The faith refers to the word of God and to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some extraordinary stepping out and foretelling. It's not some extraordinary stepping out with a, a, a mystical and extraordinary revelation. That did happen in the New Testament, but that was a gift that was given only to the prophets who were in extraordinary offices. The gift of prophecy that we'll concern ourselves with in the body of Christ and it equips and edifies the body of Christ is the gift of being able to tell forth the word of God. It has to marry exactly with what the word of God has to say, either preaching or whatever it is to tell forth that declaration of the word of God. Whereas prophecy seems to tell forth the people, stands before them, exhortation comes alongside them, but you have different speaking gifts and that's not our subject. But I wanna show you the difference in prophecy in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 12 and prophecy in chapter 12 of Romans and verse six, there's a difference there. I know some of you are saying, well, Wayne, the word prophecy is mentioned throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. What do you say about that? Don't get ahead of me. Zero, 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 zero. You know what that means? Just shut up, Wayne, you're through. I'm gonna ease forward. Don't you jump ahead of me. And don't run out of here and say I said this or I said that. Just tell people what I said. I wanna go on record to where I stand. But I think before we finish this, it'll be better understandable to all of us. 
If you're talking about prophecy in that particular verse, which is connected to all the other extraordinary gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, to me, you are bound by that to apply the extraordinary meanings of the gift of prophecy, and then you have to connect it with the extraordinary office of the gift of the prophet, which is not something we have today. Can God still speak to people and give a revelation to something of the future? Sure he can. He can do anything he wants to do. Do we look for it as a pattern? No, sir, not at all. Matter of fact, if somebody comes to me and says, I've got a message from God about you, you know what I tell them? I don't care what you tell them. I'm telling you what I tell them. You know what I tell them? I'm telling them, well, you go off and sit still while I wait to get a message from God about me to me. And then I'll come to you to see if the message you got about from God about me to you matches with the message I got about from God about me to me. And if they don't match, see you later, alligator. That's the kind of junk we've gotten into, folks. Got to talk to me the other day. I said, a lady walked up to me at a filling station and said, God just gave me a revelation as to what something's going to happen in your life. Could that happen? I guess so. I guess Tarzan could fly in the wind or any moment now. I guess it's possible. But friend, if you're building your life off of that, you realize what a shallow foundation you're building off of? You sound like the church of Corinth. Upside down, distorted, and ignorant. You know why? Not because they hadn't been taught, but because they really weren't willing to surrender to what they knew. That's the cross. That's, the, that's dying to self. When you start dying to self, the gifts are no longer important to you. The giver is everything in your life. Remember that. That is the focus of your life. If what I'm teaching in gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14 divides this church, somebody's got a problem with the giver. You don't have a problem with me or the gift. You've got a problem with the giver. If the giver is the Holy Spirit of God, he's the one who unifies the body. He doesn't split it up and divide it. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 